The Mystery of the Dirty Socks In the 1970s, the psychologist Daryl Bem set about trying to distinguish conscientious people from others by making up a list of behaviors. He assumed he'd find a positive correlation between turns in school assignments on time and wears clean socks, because both would stem from the underlying trait of conscientiousness. But when he collected data from students at Stanford, where he taught, he was surprised to find a hefty negative correlation. Apparently, he joked, the students could either get their homework done or change their socks every day, but not both. He didn't give it much further thought. But decades later, other researchers wondered if there was something to the joke. Two Australian psychologists, Megan Oten and Ken Chang, considered the possibility that the students were suffering from the sort of ego depletion revealed in the Radish experiment. These psychologists started by administering laboratory self-control tests to the students at different times during the semester. As hypothesized, the students performed relatively badly near the end of the term, apparently because their willpower had been depleted by the strain of studying for exams and turning in assignments. But the deterioration wasn't limited to arcane laboratory tests. When asked about other aspects of their lives, it became clear that Bem's dirty sock findings hadn't been a fluke. All sorts of good habits were forsaken as the students' self-control waned during exam period. They stopped exercising. They smoked more cigarettes. They drank so much coffee and tea that their caffeine intake doubled. The extra caffeine might have been excused as a study aid, but if they were really studying more, you'd expect them to be drinking less alcohol, and that didn't happen. Even though there were fewer parties during exam time, the students drank as much as ever. They abandoned healthy diets and increased their consumption of junk food by 50%. It wasn't that they suddenly convinced themselves that potato chips were a brain food. They simply stopped worrying about unhealthy, fattening foods when they were focused on exams. They also became less concerned about returning phone calls, washing dishes, or cleaning floors. Final exam time brought declines in every aspect of personal hygiene that was studied. The students became less diligent about brushing and flossing their teeth, they skipped washing their hair and shaving, and yes, they wore dirty socks and other unwashed clothes. Could all of this merely reflect a practical, if slightly unhealthy, shift in priorities? Were they sensibly saving time so that they could study more? Not quite. During exams, students reported an increase in the tendency to spend time with friends instead of studying, precisely the opposite of what would be sensible and practical. Some students even reported that their study habits got worse during exam time, which couldn't have been their intention. They must have been devoting much of their willpower to making themselves study harder, and yet they ended up studying less. Likewise, they reported an increase in oversleeping and in spending money impulsively. Shopping sprees made no practical sense during exam period, but the students had less discipline to restrain their spending. They were also more grumpy, irritable, and prone to anger or despair. They may have blamed their outbursts on the stress of exam period because there's a common misperception that stress causes those kinds of emotions. What stress really does, though, is deplete willpower, which diminishes your ability to control those emotions.
The effects of ego depletion were recently demonstrated even more precisely in the Beeper study in Germany that we mentioned earlier. By using beepers to query people about their desires throughout the day, Baumeister and his colleagues could see how much willpower was being exerted as the day went on. Sure enough, the more willpower people expended, the more likely they became to yield to the next temptation that came along. When faced with a new desire that produced some I want to, but I really shouldn't sort of inner conflict, they gave in more readily if they'd already fended off earlier temptations particularly if the new temptation came soon after a previous one. When they eventually yielded to temptation, the German adults as well as the American college students probably blamed their lapses on some flaw in their character. I just don't have enough willpower. But earlier in the day, or earlier in the semester, they'd all had enough willpower to resist similar temptations. What had happened to it? Was it really all gone? Perhaps, but there was also another way to interpret the research on ego depletion. Many people didn't simply run out of willpower. Maybe they consciously or unconsciously hoarded it. One of Baumeister's graduate students, Mark Moorhaven, took up the question of conservation and kept studying it until he was well-established as a tenured professor at the State University of New York at Albany. He began, as usual, with a round of exercises to deplete the subject's willpower. Then, when he prepared them for the second round, testing their perseverance, he warned them that there would later be an additional third round featuring more tasks to perform. People reacted by slacking off on the second round. Consciously or unconsciously, they were conserving energy for the final push. Then Morhaven tried another variation in the second round of the experiment. Before testing people's perseverance, he informed them that they could win money by doing well. The cash worked wonders. People immediately found reserves to perform well. Watching the experimental subjects persevere, you'd never have known that their willpower had been depleted earlier. They were like marathoners who found a second wind once they caught sight of the prize waiting for them at the finish line. But suppose, upon reaching that prize, the marathoners were suddenly informed that the finish line was actually another mile down the road. That's essentially what Moorhaven did to the people who won cash for their perseverance in the second round. He waited until after their stellar performance to inform them that they weren't quite done yet. There'd be another round of perseverance tests. Since they hadn't been warned ahead of time, they hadn't conserved any energy, and it showed in their exceptionally bad performances. In fact, the better they had done in the second round, the worse they did in the third round. Now they were like marathoners who had started their closing kick too soon and were passed by everyone else as they limped toward the finish line. Lessons from the Street and the Lab For all her bohemian transgressiveness, Amanda Palmer is thoroughly bourgeois in one respect. Ask her about willpower, and she will tell you that she has never had enough. I don't consider myself a disciplined person at all, she says. But if you press her, she will concede that her six years as a living statue did strengthen her resolve. The street performing gave me balls of steel, she says. Those hours in the box trained me to stay focused. Being a performer is about tying yourself to the post of the present moment and staying focused. 
I'm pretty much the worst when it comes to long-term strategic planning, but I have a really strong brand of work ethic, and I'm a very disciplined, one-thing person. If it's just one project at a time, I can focus on it for hours. That's more or less what researchers discovered after studying thousands of people inside and outside the laboratory. The experiments consistently demonstrated two lessons. One, you have a finite amount of willpower that becomes depleted as you use it. Two, you use the same stock of willpower for all manner of tasks. You might think you have one reservoir of self-control for work, another for dieting, another for exercise, and another for being nice to your family. But the radish experiment showed that two completely unrelated activities, resisting chocolate and working on geometry puzzles, drew on the same source of energy, and this phenomenon has been demonstrated over and over. There are hidden connections among the wildly different things you do all day. You use the same supply of willpower to deal with frustrating traffic, tempting food, annoying colleagues, demanding bosses, pouting children. Resisting dessert at lunch leaves you with less willpower to praise your boss's awful haircut. The old line about the frustrated worker going home and kicking the dog jibes with the ego depletion experiments, although modern workers generally aren't so mean to their pets. They're more likely to say something nasty to the humans in the household. Ego depletion affects even your heartbeat. When people in laboratory experiments exercise mental self-control, their pulse becomes more erratic. Conversely, people whose normal pulse is relatively variable seem to have more inner energy available for self-control because they do better on laboratory tests of perseverance than do people with steadier heartbeats. Other experiments have shown that chronic physical pain leaves people with a perpetual shortage of willpower because their minds are so depleted by the struggle to ignore the pain. We can divide the uses of willpower into four broad categories, starting with the control of thoughts. Sometimes it's a losing struggle, whether you're fruitlessly trying to ignore something serious, out, damn, spot, or can't get rid of an annoying earworm, I got you, babe, I got you, babe. But you can also learn to focus, particularly when the motivation is strong. People often conserve their willpower by seeking not the fullest or best answer but rather a predetermined conclusion. Theologians and believers filter the world to remain consistent with the non-negotiable principles of their faith. The best salesmen often succeed by first deceiving themselves. Bankers packaging subprime loans convince themselves that there is no problem giving mortgages to the class of unverified borrowers classified as NINA, as in no income, no assets. Tiger Woods convinced himself that the rules of monogamy didn't apply to him, and that somehow nobody would notice the dalliances of the world's most famous athlete. Another broad category is the control of emotions, which psychologists call affect regulation when it's focused specifically on mood. Most commonly, we're trying to escape from bad moods and unpleasant thoughts, although we occasionally try to avoid cheeriness, like when we're getting ready for a funeral or preparing to deliver bad news, and we occasionally try to hang on to feelings of anger so that we're in the right state to lodge a complaint. Emotional control is uniquely difficult because you generally can't alter your mood by an act of will. You can change what you think about or how you behave, 
but you can't force yourself to be happy. You can treat your in-laws politely, but you can't make yourself rejoice over their month-long visit. To ward off sadness and anger, people use indirect strategies, like trying to distract themselves with other thoughts or working out at the gym or meditating. They lose themselves in TV shows and treat themselves to chocolate binges and shopping sprees. Or they get drunk. A third category is often called impulse control, which is what most people associate with willpower, the ability to resist temptations like alcohol, tobacco, Cinnabons, and cocktail waitresses. Strictly speaking, impulse control is a misnomer. You don't really control the impulses. Even someone as preternaturally disciplined as Barack Obama can't avoid stray impulses to smoke a cigarette. What he can control is how he reacts. Does he ignore the impulse, or chew a Nicorette, or sneak out for a smoke? He has usually avoided lighting up, according to the White House, but there have been slips. Finally, there's the category that researchers call performance control. Focusing your energy on the task at hand, finding the right combination of speed and accuracy, managing time, persevering when you feel like quitting. In the rest of the book, we'll discuss strategies for improving performance at work and at home, and we'll look at techniques for improving self-control in all the other categories too. Thoughts, emotions, impulses. But before we get into specific advice, we can offer one general bit of guidance based on the ego depletion studies, and it's the same approach taken by Amanda Palmer. Focus on one project at a time. If you set more than one self-improvement goal, you may succeed for a while by drawing on reserves to power through, but that just leaves you more depleted and more prone to serious mistakes later. When people have to make a big change in their lives, their efforts are undermined if they are trying to make other changes as well. People who are trying to quit smoking, for example, will have their best shot at succeeding if they aren't changing other behaviors at the same time. Those who try to quit smoking while also restricting their eating or cutting back on alcohol tend to fail at all three, probably because they have too many simultaneous demands on their willpower. Research has likewise found that people who seek to control their drinking tend to fail on days when they have other demands on their self-control, as compared with days when they can devote all their willpower to limiting the booze. Above all, don't make a list of New Year's resolutions. Each January 1st, millions of people drag themselves out of bed, full of hope or hangover, resolve to eat less, exercise more, spend less money, work harder at the office, keep the home cleaner, and still miraculously have more time for romantic dinners and long walks on the beach. By February 1st, they're embarrassed to even look at the list. But instead of lamenting their lack of willpower, they should put the blame where it belongs on the list. No one has enough willpower for that list. If you're going to start a new physical exercise program, don't try to overhaul your finances at the same time. If you're going to need your energy for a new job, like, say, the presidency of the United States, then this probably isn't the ideal time to go cold turkey on cigarettes. Because you have only one supply of willpower, the different New Year's resolutions all compete with one another. Each time you try to follow one, 
you reduce your capacity for all the others. A better plan is to make one resolution and stick to it. That's challenge enough. There will be moments when that will still seem like one resolution too many, but perhaps you can persevere by thinking of Amanda Palmer heroically frozen in place on her pedestal. She may not consider herself a disciplined person, but she did learn something inspiring about her species even during her days surrounded by drunken hecklers and gropers. You know, humans are capable of incredible things, she says. If you simply decide that you're not going to move, you just don't move.